Join us for Courageous Conversations on August 1st and 2nd. Why? Because we want to demonstrate how to have these conversations on very difficult topics. Many things that we learn are caught, not taught. What better way to catch them than watching 28 scholars and pastors from all across the country doing it? Because I believe that believers should be on the forefront of this. In a divided world, the church should lead on how to have courageous conversations. The goals of Courageous Conversations are simple. We want to get beyond the caricatures that divide us. We want to sharpen one another. We want to build genuine relationships with those who think differently. We want to provide a safe space for dialogue and demonstrate how to effectively discuss controversial issues with people who think differently and to show the world the diversity of thought within black churches. That's why we're going to talk about those topics relevant for the church and the culture like hell, Paul sexual ethics, how to interpret the Old Testament, things we know that they disagree on, but to have a respectful conversation to demonstrate something that I think that the church should be leading on, how to have courageous conversations. So join us on August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia for the second annual Courageous Conversations. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm so excited um, that we have a, a special guest that's no stranger to the Jew3 Project. who has been on the Jew3 Project several times, who has was at Courageous Conversations last year, will be there again this year. And before we even introduce him, make sure you register for Courageous Conversations. If you're seeing this between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, we have a special resurrection sale where it's only $50 to register uh, from Friday to Sunday. And the um, code, the discount code is appropriate is he got up. So uh, use that <laughs> discount code is uh, very uh black church uh resurrection uh feel to it uh so without further ado let's welcome dr esau mccauley welcome esau thank you i'm glad that you keep inviting me back hopefully i don't say anything to get kicked me, kick me off the list <laughs> so for those who haven't seen you on other podcasts or at courageous conversations last year give them just a little bit about who you are um well my name is esau mccauley i'm an assistant professor of new testament uh, currently at Roberts Wesleyan College in, in Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. Uh, starting in the fall, I'll be starting a new job as Assistant Professor of New Testament at uh, Wheaton College. I also am one of the organizers of the Call and Response Conference, a conference dedicated to equipping Black Christians for faithful ministry in the 21st century. Um, what else do I do? I'm an Anglican priest, and I direct the Anglican Multi-Ethnic Network, a organization dedicated to helping local churches better reflect the diversity of the communities in which they find themselves. So that means getting more black and brown people in the Anglican tradition. Um, I love the Baptist. We don't all got to be Baptist. And so that's about it. That's awesome. And um, I'm glad that you're with us on this Good Friday to talk about um, Good Friday and the mm -hmm. resurrection. Um, <laughs> 
when you think of Good Friday, uh, what comes to your what what immediately comes to your mind? Well, when I think of Good Friday, I think of Jesus dying for our sins. I think that it's hard to kind of one of the one of the tricky things to do is to talk about Good Friday in the abstract. Right. So you kind of if you get rid of the, the narrative of Jesus's life, you get rid of what comes after it and you just talk about the death of Jesus. then it's not as impactful. The, the death of Jesus only has meaning as a connection to a larger story. And a larger story that, that, that Jesus's death and resurrection function as the climax of is the story of what God has wanted to do in the world from creation to the call of Abraham. And God said to Abraham that through him, all the peoples in the world will be blessed. And that God told David that his son would be the means through which blessings would come to the world. And Jesus asked the king of Israel, who was the one chosen by God to bring blessings to the world, whose death for our sins reconciles us to God, that as the climax, Jesus' death and resurrection as the climax of that story brings all of redemptive history to its apex. And so I think um, I think of Jesus' death and resurrection on Good Friday, death on Good Friday, resurrection on Sunday as the climax of the greatest story ever told. Even yeah. greater because it's true. Yes, yes. I got on my red today for the blood. Um. <laughs> I thought you was Tiger Woods. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, when we think about uh, Good Friday, a lot of people say, why do we call it good if that's the time that Jesus died? Why do why is it called Good Friday? Well, I think I think at the center of Christianity is this paradox, right? The, the, the best hymns, the best hymns that, that we know, the ones that really move us, are the ones that put uh, put their finger on this mystery that at the saddest, the saddest story that we can that we've ever heard, it's also the one that fills us with joy, right? And so we are most moved, we're talking about the sufferings of the innocent one, which makes us both sad, right? Were you there when you crucified my Lord? When you hear that song, there's something in your heart that's breaking. It's like, oh no, they did that for Jesus. But at the same time, we're hearing that, we're saying he did what they, we're, we're saying he did that for me. And so I say it's called Good Friday precisely because in the midst of darkness, there's light. And so that's the, and I think that that's all of Christianity, right? That we have a very, very sad story because the only way to, for Christianity to be good news is if sin is sufficiently seriously serious enough for God to have to send his son to die so we might be reconciled to him. And so, yeah, it's, it's Good Friday that is both sad and joyful at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love how you mentioned hymns because that leads me to my next question, which is the unique way that uh, African-Americans have viewed the cross. Um, When we're looking at the formation of African-American Christian doctrine um, and African-American Christian theology, uh, how do you think that black people in America have distinctly viewed uh, the cross? Well, I want to say that there's a sense in which African-Americans have historically um, wrapped their arms around the, 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 the central Christian truths of the atonement, right? That Jesus died for our sins. And because he died for our sins, we can be reconciled to God. And you can hear hymns that say that, that, that nothing but the blood and all the things that celebrate Jesus' death for us. See, there's a sense in which black preaching is traditional in that regard, and that Jesus died for our sins. But there's also an element, and I think this comes coming out of at least the African-American experience of slavery into freedom, they saw Jesus as the innocent one who suffered at the hands of the state. And they saw in the death of Jesus, not 
in like rejection of the atonement, but in, uh, in addition to the atonement, a critique of state power, right? Because what does the state do to you? What, what, was, what was the fear that they used to keep black people in line? If you don't do what we say, we will beat you and we will kill you. And so the fact that Jesus was the one who was beaten and killed at the hands of the state, though he was innocent, functions as a critique of the totalitizing power of the state, right? So the state's ability to instill fear through death, right? The purpose of the crucifixion, I read it somewhere else. The crucifixion was not simply, maybe it was, it was Cohn who said this, it was in Cohn's book. The crucifixion wasn't simply for the crucified. The crucifixion was a public spectacle, right? So you saw the crucifixion and everyone who saw it said, if I don't stay in line, that can happen to me. And in the same way, terror has historically been used as a means of controlling black bodies. And so Jesus' defeat of death is, it is, it's a defeat of death. It's a resurrection into a new life, but it's also a defeat of the state because the state no longer has the power to control us by fear because what's the worst you can do to us now, right? The worst you can do to me is kill me. If you kill me, I will go and be with my Lord until I'm raised from the dead. And so, so the cross has been for African-American Christians, a source of identification and a source of hope, right? It says to the state, you can go here and no further. And it gives us, and I think this is one of the misconceptions. People think, well, Christians only believe that, you know, we're going to go to heaven someday when we die. But once death has lost its power, it doesn't simply give us comfort for the future. It gives us, it gives us the tools to engage culture in the present. And so the people who went out into the streets during the civil rights movement and during the abolitionist movement to advocate for the freedom of black people did so in the, with the confident assurance that the state was not God, but that God was God and that he had sent his son who was crucified and was raised from the dead. So now the state has it's lost, it's, it's lost its trump card. Mm-hmm. And I think that's helpful. Uh, I've been looking at videos, just at footage uh, for another project we're working on. Um, and just to hear some celebrities, it's hip hop and just pop black celebrities outside of hip hop talk about how passive Christianity makes black people and the turning of the cheek and to be like Jesus on the cross who didn't say anything. Um, can, I, can I speak on that for a second? Yeah, I, yeah. So <laughs> I was going to ask you, how would you address that in response that the cross makes us seem? If taking on the posture of Jesus on the cross makes us weak and further oppressed by our ma- our slave, our, our oppressors. Okay, I will say one, I'll say a couple of things. There's two ways. Like everybody doesn't have to be a Christian. That's fine, but you but you can't be both an atheist and have bad history, right? And so it's just it's a historical fact that 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 the religion of Christianity has not simply made black people docile. Have there been African Americans who hoped in Jesus for a better future and did nothing for the culture? Fine. But there's also been woke atheists who did nothing for the culture and who just sat back and waited until they died, but they did it via hedonism. I would say that it, it, it is a fact that the leaders of the civil rights movement, a significant portion of them were Christians, were motivated by their faith in Jesus Christ, who believed because God told them so, they had a sense of somebodyness. Martin Luther King talks about it. A sense of somebodyness where black people realized that we were image bearers and as immigrants, we deserve a certain respect. And we went out and demanded that respect. And as a matter of fact, part of that was the only reason that nonviolent resistance works or it has any theological power is via the resurrection. 
if if you believe that Jesus was a, was a a non-violent person who was killed and stayed in the grave, then that's a bad method to follow. But if Jesus was the one who loved his enemies and who died and who rose again, then that way of life is vindicated. And if that's the case, then it is possible for, for, for Christians to go out into the culture, engage the culture for change, believing in the divine power of Christian love to bring about change in the culture. And the only way to claim, the only way to claim that Christianity has done nothing for black people is to exist in a complete historical vacuum. I mean, who started the black HBCUs? Who started them? And it ain't that hard to Google, right? Where Who started the banks and the hospitals and all of the, all of the early Christian institutions had some connections with black churches. If they didn't start directly black, by black churches, they started in the basis of black churches before they went onto the culture. Now, I'm not saying that every good thing black came from the church, but I'm saying that if you remove the church from the, the equation, then black culture is much different, especially the R&B music that they sing. We invented that. That's gospel music, right? <laughs> That's the reason like, Aretha would slide back and forth because the feeling of, of rhythm and blues and the feeling and the passion of hip hop is, is at its core a gospel passion that has lost its moorings, right? I mean, if, if the if the audacity of the of the hip hop author, hip hop hip hop artist isn't similar to the audacity of the black preacher, then I don't know what it is, right? Yeah, and I think that's an appropriate response uh, to the to the criticism. Um, and, and can, can, I, can, I, can I say can I say one more thing about that? Sure. Just, I'll, I'll leave it alone. For for the persuasive power of that critique, it demands that the resurrection not be true, right? You're saying God has done nothing for black people. That assumes that the entire Christian story is false. But if the resurrection is true and God exists then the best thing that you could possibly do is be a part of the people who are going to live forever. And so you can't begin the argument assuming that our claims aren't true. So before you can critique what God has done for Christ for black people, you have to address the question of God particularly. And then you get to the issue of like what happened on Good Friday and what happened three days later. And so you can't simply say, we ain't as free as I would like to be in 2019. Therefore, the resurrection doesn't happen. No, the resurrection precedes what happened in America. So you have to deal with that first and then see what happened in America in light of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And I love, as, as as you were talking about talking, I started thinking about um, nonviolent protests and how they were trained to, uh, before they went and set, did the sit-ins um, in the diners, they were trained by other Black people on how to take um, take insults without uh, without saying a word. And I couldn't help but think of Jesus on the cross enduring all those kinds of things and being beaten and not saying a word. And it just reminds me of seeing movies of where they're at the diner and uh, people, uh, white people are spitting at them and they're just taking it um, in a form of protest because they understood that people thought negatively about black people already. So one of the things they had to do was show the horrors of the oppressor by sitting nonviolently um, and taking it during that time. And what Jesus did was when we were doing those things to him on the cross, it showed us the ugliness of who we are um, and the goodness of who he is. And um, I just, I thought about that as you were. I, I, I want to say this too, like Jesus's death on the cross 
is is slightly different than, and I get what you're saying. I want to see the points of connection and the points of difference. Jesus' death on this on the cross is powerful precisely because he didn't have to do that, right? Jesus was not in the exact analogous situation of black people because we were the vast minority, and we can start the revolution if we wanted to in 1950. We would have all died. Jesus was God's son, and had he wanted to call down the angels, the game would have been over. And so it's precisely the emptying of his power that makes what he did on the cross glorious. And so what makes black people Christ-like is not simply that we're weak, right? Black people weren't weak in the civil rights movement. The black people who dealt with the cities were not weak. It was a strength of character that allowed them to engage in those things and to give up that right to respond for the sake of transformation. Howard Thurman talks about this. Howard Thurman talks about the fact that hatred is rarely, hatred is energized. So that when you hate your enemy, there's a certain energy that comes to hating your enemy and that allows you to kind of organize for resistance. But he also says that hatred can rarely be contained it always spills out to other people. And so you begin with hating one group, and the next thing you know, you hate black people who aren't as woke as you are. And the next thing you know, nobody meets your standard, and the hatred that you thought that you could direct one place begins to spread throughout the entirety of the culture. I think he's right about that. And he says that Jesus chose not to hate because he knew the destructive power of hate. And so Christian love is not weak. It is a it is it is the weakness of God manifesting itself being stronger than men's strength. And Jesus's love and the love that Christians have shown in black Christians have shown in America has had more transforming power than probably any other Christian movement in the history, in the history of this country. Black, the black church and our activism is the glory of American Christianity. Yeah. I think you're, you're spot on with that. Uh, and I think that's an encouragement to us all. And it, it shows that, um, T, I said something uh, on his show. He said, religion is just a means of control. And it's yeah. funny that we think that, um, but in essence, having unforgiveness and bitterness controls you in a way that you, you we aren't even always cognizant of. Um, and we miss that uh, trying to run from Christianity sometimes leads us in a, a different level of control. Meek Mill has that song with uh, Jay-Z and Rick Ross. Am I allowed to know about that on June 3? <laughs> it's called What's Free. It's called What's Free. That's an, and it's like, and, 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 the, and the, the refrain goes over and over again, what's free. And, and there's this idea that being free of Christianity allows you to be free to determine your own fate. But the reality is we are, in some sense, at the mercy of our desires. And so when you see the person, it's, it's amazing, right, that people say, I want to be free um, because I want to be from, I want to be away from Christianity. But then their freedom looks exactly like the behavior of some other group, right? It's, it's not that you go and you create your own identity. You just adopt another identity with another set of rules, another set of values. Who, this is the only question, this, this is what I'm going to say. Who is counseling more people than non-Christians on the internet, right? We're supposed to be the legalists, but the moment you say something that is not like perfectly politically, economically, culturally in line with where they think it should be, you get retweeted and canceled and you get shamed and the internet comes at you like a mob and goes, you're the worst person ever, kill yourself. And so we have this strange, this strange move happening in the culture where on the one hand, we're supposed to be more people to be more tolerant when they leave Christianity, but it seems like there's a new legalism, a new secular legalism that has all of these rules that you can't transgress. 
And if you do, you get canceled. I mean, I, I just see it online. We, we, had, we thought that if we got rid of Christianity and we trusted our celebrities, we would be happier. But now I see so many people who are always mad at some celebrity. Like the celebrity, I used to love your music, but now your politics. You know, we used to love Kanye. Now we don't love Kanye, right? We used to love this person. Now we don't love that person. And it's almost as if we thought that these people could be our gods. And we found out, like the Greeks did, that these people make horrible, horrible objects of worship. And so now we're in the process of watching the culture kill the very people who they want to replace Christianity with, right? Because that's what they wanted to do. They want to say, we don't want to listen to the pastors. We want to listen to the secular leaders who understand like black needs. But now, then once people turn their eyes to them, they saw they had the same problems there that they've seen in other places. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, I love the fact that the cross and the resurrection are liberating for those on the margins. Uh, one of the ways in which it's demonstrated is having women be the first ones to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Jesus had rose from the dead. Um, and that's often a point that's overlooked that women were the first ones to preach the gospel. Um, how does that, how should that impact us today? Well, I would say a couple of things. Um, one of the things we should actually on Good Friday, people talk about all of the time on Thursday night, Monday, Thursday, all the disciples abandon Jesus and he's left alone and he dies forsaken on Good Friday. That's just like not true. The women were there, the women and John. Literally, Jesus says from the cross to, to his mom, Mary, and John's there, Mary's there, and she goes, Mary, behold your son. Like he, Jesus told Mary to like go in and stay with John. And so not only were the women there at the resurrection, the women were one of the few disciples who stood by him in his crucifixion. They loved him to the end. And so I want to say that the Bible is filled with the testimony of faithful women, not just at the resurrection, but at the cross. But to speak particularly of the cross, I mean, of the resurrection, we have to understand what's happening here. If we believe that God's in control of history, right, and that he's working his purposes out in time, then it is no accident that the women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. They were witnesses. Oh, I think I went, I went away for a second. Never they were witnesses to the resurrection because God wanted them to be witnesses to the resurrection. God wanted the women to be um, the first people to recognize um, what Jesus had done. So I would say that understanding the fact that you have women who are there with Jesus at the cross, you have women who are the first ones literally to say he has risen. If you flip over to the um, Acts of the Apostles and the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, you know who's there at Pentecost? Women and men. It says it right there before the Holy Spirit comes down. It says Mary was in the upper room. And what happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes down and the people who are filled with the Spirit go out and proclaim the gospel. And so you have at the cross, at the resurrection, at the descent of the Spirit, women engaging in robust ministry of the gospel. And it has to raise the question of if God wanted women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection and that women have showed themselves faithful at, by staying with Jesus unto the cross and women are there preaching the gospel at Pentecost and Paul refers to women as people who work side by side with him in the gospel, then how is it that we can't find space in our churches to effectively engage women in ministry and leadership? Mm-hmm. I love I mean, that. Um, if I had to, yeah, 
if I had a if I had a uh, if I was preaching Resurrection Sunday, uh, I thought I thought a cool name would be Trust Black Women, uh, yeah. only because that uh, <laughs> because it goes along with believing uh, yeah. what what they said when Jesus wrote that Jesus had rose from yeah. the dead. Um, if I had to tie some culture in it with uh, what's going on right now, uh, make it a tweetable, tweetable sermon title. Uh, but <laughs> I think that leads to the validity when we think when we're thinking apologetically. Can I, can I, can I say can I say can I say one more thing about that about yeah, the stuff God entrusted women with the most important story in the history of humanity. As the first witnesses to say, we do you know how many people have said he has risen since that moment? All right. That echoes. Secondly, we can look at probably Paul's most important letter, the book of Romans, right? Romans 16, 1 says that he entrusts Phoebe. And I know people disagree with me, but Phoebe is clearly a deacon. In Romans 16, 1, Paul entrusts Phoebe, the deacon from the church in Corinth, to take that letter to Rome and to make sure that it's read. Now, why would he choose a woman? Why would he choose Phoebe? Because he knew that Phoebe could be trusted to deliver the message and that there's any points of a lack of clarity. And trust me, I'm sure people, when they first heard Romans, there was a lack of clarity. Who would you, who would you turn to? Right? Who would you turn to? The person who just did, delivered the letter, right? Paul sent you with this letter. He had us read it. I'm confused about chapter nine. What's going on here, Phoebe? Did Paul give you any insights into this? So I'm, I'm reasonably confident that the, the, gospel is, the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus was first proclaimed by women and probably the first interpretation of Paul's letter to the Romans was given by Phoebe the deacon. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a history in the New Testament of trusting the testimony of women. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the concept of trust, trust black women was a new to, to, to Jesus. Uh, it was actually uh, start, started, it was his idea to begin with. It was, it was, it was, it was almost as if God wanted to, well, well, can I, sorry, I'll leave this. What, what do you, what do you, we're talking about Mary, right? We talk, we, we, we're talking about Mary and what you need to do is read the Magnificat, read Mary's um, statement of praise when Jesus, when she finds out that Jesus is going to be born within her womb. Read how she talks about what it means to be a follower of God. Read what she says about justice and then look at Jesus's life. Of course, Jesus is the son of God. Fine. That's all true. But Jesus was formed by a woman who knew Israel's scripture and inculcated in Jesus a love for the prophets, right? Where did Jesus learn all of this stuff, right? He learned it at home with his mom and his dad. And we do know that at some point, Jesus' father dies and that Mary is responsible in a unique way for completing the upbringing of Jesus. And so there is this, and, and, and to entrust the son of God, right, to her, that it, it's hard for me to... to to, and I get, like, we have different understandings of how all of this stuff works, but the marginalization of women in our churches, this has to stop. It's unbiblical. So when we think about um, the the three days, or some would argue it's not three days, uh, between <laughs> the death and resurrection, we already addressed that on another podcast, so if you if you want to know about the three days, uh, go to uh, our our episode uh, on uh, resurrection factor fiction. Um, if you want to, if you want to engage that question. Um, but what do you think a lot of people miss about that? Uh, I love that um, one pastor notes the that we kind of skip over the Saturday 
and that yes. the women, um, they took the Sabbath seriously still after their savior had died. The one that put their hope in that they still obey God's commands despite their disappointment. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, so in my church, we actually have a service. We have two services on Saturday. One is called, it happens on Saturday morning where there's a service at the tomb. And there's another one that happens on Saturday evening. And there's a sense in which if Good Friday is the moment of the church's um, great um, trauma, Saturday is a moment of the church's waiting in which we have to sit with the grief. And, and the, the women at that point had lost everything that they ever hoped for. But Jesus wasn't just any king. He was a different kind of king, right? He was the kind of king who actually valued them, right? Martha and Mary, he invited them into the community and said, you can learn. And, and Jesus' ministry pointed to a different type of kingdom in which the marginalized might actually be giving a, a seat at God's table. And so when Jesus died, it wasn't simply a death. It was a death of a certain way of life. And these women had enough piety. They had God deep enough inside them to continue forward on instinct. And I think all of us kind of understand that when the real trauma hits, hits us, that's when we really find out what we believe, right? That we don't even understand why we're doing it. We're going to, maybe you're going to church and you feel like, I don't believe this anymore, or you're having this like a, a lack of faith. And this great thing is that they had it, they had enough kind of God deep in them to go on instinct until God met them. And what happened on Easter Sunday is not that these women worked their way through the trauma, Right. But the God met them in the midst of the trauma. It's, 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 it's a story of what God has done. And so I would say that for Holy Saturday, in a lot of ways, is a great encouragement to the Christian who feels like they've lost their way and they don't know why they're still doing these things. And what I would say is that Jesus says, hold on. Right. Sunday's coming. And that sometimes all you can do as a Christian is it is, is, is exists in that place of I'm not emotionally experiencing these things to be true. I'm deeply disappointed with what I thought God was going to do in my life. He doesn't seem to be doing it, but I'm going to keep going anyway. And it's precisely that belief in the midst of extreme trauma that is rewarded with resurrection, right? Because the women didn't go to the tomb to see a resurrected person. They went to the tomb to, put, to play their final respects. And so I would say is that, that Holy Saturday coming into Sunday shows us that God meets us in our disappointments and eventually turns their disappointments disappointments into triumph if we will just wait. And I can say that same story. I can tell that story in my life a thousand times over. Like that I wasn't always like sitting on Jude 3 talking about Jesus. There was times I wasn't even sure what I believed. But God came to me in the midst of my unbelief and pointed me towards a better way. Amen. Cue the organ. <laughs> I know. Anglicans don't know how to do call and response, but I was with, I was with the, some Kojic brothers and sisters this summer, and they, they 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 got me back to my old my old Baptist ways. He came back. <laughs> <laughs> you you can't go wrong with that. Uh, so when we think about we've we've talked about Good Friday, we talked about uh, waiting on um, Saturday. Let's let's close uh, for the people on uh, this discount code that you could get for Courageous Conversations for $50 uh, Friday to Sunday. Just want to, another little plug. He yeah. got up. Um, yeah. How does, how have, has that, because every Black sermon in Baptist tradition usually ends with early yeah. 
Sunday morning. Early. Yeah. Early. 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 So he, he got up. I'll I, I tell you, when, when I told my pastor a long time ago that I wanted to be a pastor, I wanted to be a preacher, he called me to his office and said, make sure you mention the birth, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. He kicked me out of his office. That was like his only, that was his only preaching advice. But I would say that um, one of the things that, that we have to make sure that we understand is what exactly the resurrection means, right? The resurrection doesn't mean that like Jesus died, but God kind of raised his soul into heaven, like the kind of the body lost, but the soul kind of returns. Resurrection is the defeat of death. It means that God wants to reclaim every aspect of his creation, that our bodies themselves, our bodies are good and created by God. And not simply our soul is going to live with him, but our body is going to live with him. And that's why some of our hymns don't really capture the glory of the resurrection because he talks about just flying away somewhere. But the Christian hope is not that we just fly away into, into heaven and that we exist as these disembodied spirits in the afterlife. The Christian hope is that God will call those things that are dead back to life in the same way that he did his son. Paul says it, right? If Christ is not raised and you are still in your sins, you have all men most to be pitied. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then he is the first fruits of the resurrection. So what God did for Christ, he's going to do for us. And so when we celebrate in Christ's resurrection, it's inseparable from the celebration of our resurrection. But it's simply, it's not even, it gets even better than that. It's not simply that our bodies will be raised, that we, we, we go into heaven. The vision of, of, of the Bible and the book of Revelation is actually, in a sense, the resurrection of creation itself, that all creation is transformed, and that not only do we get a new body, we get a new heavens and a new earth. And so it's the very ground that we walked on has been redeemed. And so the, the resurrection of Jesus doesn't just lift mankind, right? It lifts creation itself. So I tell people, Jacksonville, Florida will be redeemed and transformed at the coming of Christ. Rochester, New York will be transformed at the coming of Christ. The resurrection will transform all things. And if the resurrection is going to transform all things that is coming, all Christian theology works this way. We, we, we live in the present now in light of what's going to be in the future. So if God is going to resurrect and transform creation in the future, then we begin the work of transforming the culture in creation now as a testimony to the power of the resurrection. That's where political activism comes in. It's not that we believe that we think that the kingdom is going to come on earth. It's that we believe that the kingdom already exists on heaven in heaven and that it's going to come to earth. And our activism now is to tell you what it's going to be like when he comes. And so when we see people who are being denied their rights and their abilities, we're saying this is not how God created intended this creation to function. Therefore, we oppose this in the name of our king. And so the resurrection of Jesus, if true, and I think it is, changes everything. Can I tell you one more story? Then I know you got other stuff to do. Yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll back, I'll back, I'll back. You yeah, got to invite me back. Go ahead. So there's this, there's this, there's this, um, this story by Flannery O'Connor called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And it tells the story of this guy called the misfit. And, he, and he's an atheist. And he goes around and he murders people. Right. And he's shooting people. He's, he kills like five people. And he, and, he, and he finally gets to the last woman he's going to kill. And um, before he gets rid of the shooter, the grandmother goes, but like Jesus loves you. Right. And then he goes, Jesus, um, he messed everything up. Right. He's the only one who understood, because if, if what he said is true, then there's nothing else to do but give everything away and follow him. But what Jesus said is false. There's nothing left to do but meanness. And then he shoots the woman, right? He shoots her in the head and she dies. And then 
his friends goes, let's go have some more fun. And the misfit goes, there is no fun in this world. And the point of that is, is that this guy, even though he was a murderer, understood the implications of the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, everything has changed. If the resurrection is not true, and the only thing that awaits us is our death, then let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. Right? The story that we tell on Easter Sunday is not a game for children. Right? It's, the game, it's the story of a God who makes a claim about creation. And that's, that's a, that's, that is a claim that demands our very life. A, a, a half-hearted Christian does not understand the gospel and doesn't know what the resurrection means. If he, if he or she did, then we'd live different. Mm-hmm. Um, be- before we end, I have two more things I want to, to ask you. You have time? Yes, I got some time. Okay. Um, we have, well, before I ask you that question, what recommendations, book recommendations would you give for those who want to study uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus? Um, well, my, my advisor, N.T. Wright, wrote a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, I would, if you, under, if you want to understand what, res- what resurrection meant in the first century world, I would, re- I would recommend you read that. I would also recommend that you would read um, on Good Friday his book, The Day the Revolution Began, um, also by N.T. Wright. It's a good look at kind of um, the kind of the origin point of Christianity. I think that, um, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm adding the cross. Oh, um, I would also recommend if you're looking for stuff, I'm going to do crucifixion and and um, resurrection. Fleming Rutledge um, wrote a book called, um, I think it's just called The Crucifixion. But if you Google Fleming Rutledge, she's um, an Episcopal priest. She wrote a great series of sermons on the crucifixion that I recommend you reading. Um, I think it's I, th- I think it's important to read um, James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. I think that um, Cone it does a good job in places of describing kind of uh, black grievance. I don't know if he always gets to um, he captures the heart of what's going on with the atonement, but um, as a reflection on um, black pain and lynching, there are parts of that that I found helpful. There are parts of it that I would disagree with, but I think it's important that we engage and understand what's going on there. But I think the cone does a good job, especially of talking about the ways in which um, crucifixion and lynching were objects of terror um, for the Jews in the first century and black people during Jim Crow. Um, so like I said, there, there are parts where I would push back on them and say, I wish that he had a, a more robust um, articulation of some of kind of traditional Christian themes, but that's fine. You don't have, the book doesn't have to be perfect to be good. Awesome. Well, um, you're going to be at the conversations this year. Yes, and, I am. Uh, you're going to be talking about a very important topic, Paul's sexual ethics. Um, yes. I don't want you to give away your position on it, uh, but I want you to talk about why it's important and why we need to have this conversation. Yeah, I think that we we have to do we have to do we have to make some decisions, right? Either um, our sexual identities are central to who we are or they're not. And if our sexual identities, as our culture is starting to tell us, are central parts of what it means to be human, then what God has to say or what the New Testament has to say about our sexual expression is of vital importance. And so we can't have it both ways. right? We can't say that God or the New Testament should stay out of the issues of sexuality and say that the issue of sexuality is supreme importance. The more important an issue is, 
the more important it is to think through what these early Christian texts have to say about them. Because I think that our culture is partially right, that, that our sexuality is important. And understanding what God wants us to do with our bodies is important. And I think it's important for every Christian to, to struggle through those issues and to say, um, what does God intend for my flourishing? And I think that what we're going to try to do as best as we can is to have an honest conversation to try to discern what Paul might say about what a healthy sexual life could be. Now, my job is always, as a New Testament scholar, oh, sorry, my computer, keep going back to sleep. My job is, as a New Testament scholar is always to attempt to articulate as best as I can a account of what Paul what Paul believes. Now, you can get to the point where you say you disagree with Paul, but I think it's always important to, A, understand what he said and what he didn't say, so we're not disagreeing with the conjecture, and B, try to understand the logic that led him to that decision. And then after that, then we've kind of reached the end of the conversation after we've done that. We've tried to figure out what Paul has to say and see if it makes, um, if the spirit uses Paul's words to, to reorient our lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, to hear more about, this is my plug again, to hear more of what Esau has to say, his, his thoughts on uh, Paul, uh, make sure you join us for Courageous Conversations, August 1st and 2nd in is Atlanta. Georgia. You can register at Courageous Combos dot org or you could go to g3project.com we want you to register join us to hear what dr esau dr dennis edwards dr margaret amer and and dr angela parker they're going to have a courageous conversation on this topic so make sure you join us don't just uh don't just uh don't just come but bring somebody with you i think it's going to be amazing time two days of, of seven conversations 28 pastors scholars and thought leaders from across the country and this time we even invited people that weren't seminary trained because the goal is to bridge the gap between the church and the academy. So uh, we want just a, a, a lot of different perspectives in the building uh, for for this year. So make sure you join us. Um, Esau, how can people get in contact with you on social media? Um, you can follow me at Esau McCauley on Twitter. Um, that's probably the easiest way to, you can find me. On, don't don't come for me on Facebook. I think I'm near my max on Facebook followers. I might have to start like one of those other kinds of accounts. But yeah, follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm on Instagram. Sometimes I write stuff for different um, magazines and all and places. And so you'll see you'll see my name published here and there. I got a book coming out with for IVP. Um, hopefully in 2020. So be praying for that and be looking for it and buy it because I got four kids. And oh, we're having a regional call and response leadership conference in September. And so for those of you who know about the call and response conference, people have been asking us, is there going to be another one? We're going to do a regional one in Charlotte in September. You should be seeing some stuff on that, about that online. So if you want to... Um, if you go C-A-R-C conference, call us bronze conference, you can find us on Twitter there as well. Dope. I'm excited about that and all you have coming up and um, I'll see you soon. Uh, make sure y'all um, follow us and rate and subscribe us on iTunes. It really helps 
on YouTube. I don't know if they have a rating system, but definitely on Facebook, you can rate uh, Jude 3 Project. Remember here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. And if you become, become a monthly partner with the Jude 3 Project to help us uh, with the organization, push the organization forward with events, all of that stuff um, by going to Jude3Project.com and hitting the Donate tab. Um, until next time, I'm Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Um, and have a great one. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching jute 3 project and it'll be right there for you So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.